deity of Christ. I, I praise God that I can stand up here and I can, I can say to you that today I, I come to you not talking about Muhammad and not talking about Buddha. We're not talking about Reverend Moon. We're not talking about Confucius. We're not talking about Mahatma Gandhi, you know, leaders of other religions. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who claimed not only to be the way shower, but claimed to be the way. He didn't tell us, if you follow these principles, you'll get to heaven. Think, Muhammad taught things like that. You do more good works, do more good things than bad things, you'll get to heaven someday. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus taught none of you, none of us are good enough to get to heaven on our own. And if we're going to get to heaven, it's got to be through Him and through Him alone. Well, I'm here today to say that our Savior is not a mere man. Now, He is truly and fully man, but He is also fully God. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union, that in the unity of one person, Jesus exists as one person with two natures a human nature and a divine nature. He always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. But then at a point in time, he became a man and added a human nature to his divine person. And so today I want us to look at the deity of Christ. Like I mentioned this earlier, there's a guy in Port Orchard that's denying that Jesus is God. And he teaches that Jesus only pre-existed in God's foreknowledge, in God's mind, but that Jesus did not exist uh, until he was conceived in the womb of Mary. That is not what the Bible teaches. We're going to see what the apostles, what they said about Jesus. We're going to see what the Old Testament prophets said about Jesus. They predicted hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth that he would walk the earth. But they also called him God. We're going to see what God the Father says about Jesus. We're going to see what Jesus said about himself, about, himself, about his own person. And then we're going to see that Jesus acted as if he really believed he was God. Now, if he did claim to be God, that's important because people like uh, C.S. Lewis have told us if Jesus claimed to be God, and the evidence indicates that he did claim to be God, then you can't just choose to say, like the Muslims or the Buddhists or Hindus, you can't say, well, he was just a great man. Because by definition, a great man doesn't claim to be something that he is not, especially God. A great man is not a blasphemer. So since Jesus claimed to be God, he is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's God. Those are the only three choices. Anybody who claims Jesus was just a great man or a great prophet or a great teacher doesn't take Jesus serious because over and over again he claimed to be God. And of course he proved it by raising himself from the dead. So the deity of Christ, point number one, the apostles, those, that close group of followers of Christ that he sent out and commissioned, sent them out with his authority to proclaim his word, his closest friends, the apostles, 
called Jesus God. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. And John starts off his gospel the same way that the Bible starts with the words, In the beginning. Genesis 1 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, only God existed. And yet John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Real, real clear even just as clear in the Greek as it is in the English. Only Jehovah's Witnesses uh, would go so far to try to pervert this verse and make it say less than what it's actually saying. The Word was God. Now, we know it's the Word is Jesus. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only begotten Son is Jesus. Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Very, very clear. First uh, John 5.20, we don't have time to turn there, but also in that passage, John refers to Jesus as God. Look at Second Peter, chapter 1. And the Apostle John knew Jesus pretty good. I mean, not only was he an apostle... But he was in the inner circle of three, the three closest apostles to Jesus, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, John and James. But not only was he in that inner circle, but he was the one who rested his head on our Lord's shoulder, on Jesus' chest. When they, when they would eat dinner, they wouldn't sit in chairs, they would... Uh, recline on the floor and, and they, the, the tables were very low and they would lean on cushions and John would rest his head on our Lord's chest and shoulder. And so he, he, he's referred to in the Scriptures as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, he loved all his disciples, but he loved John in a special way. And uh, John was probably a very young man at that point. And uh, his innocence and his love for his God his love for the Jewish Messiah was tremendous. And so John knew Jesus real close, yet even his closest friend could talk about him and say, when I looked at the face of Jesus, I saw the face of God. As Moses longed to see God face to face, so I have seen God face to face. And my best friend, Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter also, he, he spent three and a half years with Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. He sat under his teachings. He broke bread with him. What did Peter say about Jesus? Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's very clear in the Greek, even clearer than it is in the English, that Peter is referring to Jesus Christ as our God and Savior. There's no if, what's, or buts about it. Both John and Peter 
two of Christ's apostles clearly called Jesus God. Now, the Apostle Paul, Romans 9.5 is translated differently in different versions. It's a tough, controversial passage. I believe the NIV has the closest translation there. Because some of the translations make it sound like the wording is real tough. Some translations make it sound like Jesus is blessed of God. God has blessed Jesus forever. But that's not really what that passage is saying. I've read several commentaries on the, on the, the Greek of it, and it seems to be real clear in the Greek, a lot clearer than in the English. In fact, does anybody here have the NIV? Yeah, if you could bring that up, Doug. Thanks. This will just take a second. Romans 9, 5, reading from the NIV, it says, Theirs, meaning the Israelites, theirs are the patriarchs, the fathers like Father Abraham, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And so I think that the NIV, a lot of the other translations try to be as literal as possible. The NIV tries to be literal, but at the same time, if the wording doesn't bring across the meaning clearly, uh, they focus on getting that idea or that concept. That's their primary goal. And I think they hit the nail on the head right there in that passage. Jesus Christ, is, according to Paul, is God over all. May he be praised forever. Philippians chapter 2, another clear passage where Paul refers to Jesus as God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Paul says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Let me give you a paraphrase. This also, by the way, the NIV tries to simplify it. And again, they do a real good job. I'm not going to ask Doug to, to come up again, though. But you might want to take a look when you get a, a chance at that. But let me break it down for you. Paul is using very highly technical language. Um, the word for form there, it's not the exact Greek word that Plato used to use for his forms, the invisible ideas, the universal ideas, unchanging ideas. Um, it's not the same word, but it brings forth the same meaning. And what it basically, what he's basically saying is that Christ Jesus, although he existed in his nature as God, that's basically what he means. Jesus Christ, his essence, he has the essence of God. He is by definition God. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God. Think of the rest. In other words, he didn't cling to his equal rights as God. Even though he was equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he didn't cling to that. He said, I'm going to lay aside my privilege to hold to these equal privileges, these equal rights. I'm not going to go around and flaunt my deity, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to become a man. He emptied himself, not of his powers, he still had the same power. God, if God got rid of 
some of his attributes, he would no longer be God. But he, what he did was he veiled his glory by voluntarily choosing not to tap into some of the powers that he had while on earth. He voluntarily laid aside his privilege to use some of the powers that he had. It's not like when Jesus became a man, it would not be like Mike Tyson, probably the most vicious heavyweight boxer alive today. It's not like Mike Tyson getting his left arm amputated and then boxing others. It would be like Mike Tyson tying that hand behind his back voluntarily and choosing not to use that left arm when he boxed. Christ still had these powers and these attributes, but chose not to tap into them and chose to rely on the Father uh, to guide him and lead him throughout his life. So it is real clear that Paul says that Jesus existed as God, but didn't cling to his equal rights as God, but instead chose to veil his glory and become a man and took the role as a servant for the purpose of redeeming man. The reason why he did it, not because we were lovable, but because of God's ability to love the unlovable. The reason why he did it was because there was no other way that any of us could get into heaven was unless there was an ultimately worthy sacrifice. By the way, nowadays people throw around the term God left and right. Uh, New Agers, Mormons, lots of different cultic groups throw around the term God. To the Jewish mind, to be the true God, to be referred to as God in anything but a symbolic sense, but to, to, to be referred to God in a literal sense meant that you are the ultimately worthy being, and there is no being more worthy than you. That's what worship is. Worship is when you say, I am recognizing that there is nothing higher than God. God is the number one thing in my life. So when the Bible, the Bible don't just throw around the word God. When the Bible calls Jesus God, it's not talking about a lesser God. It's talking about the fact that somehow in a way we can't understand the one true God exists eternally as three separate, co-equal, co-eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God the Son. And so Paul calls Jesus God. Take a look at Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Now also, we don't have time to turn it, but Colossians 2.9, Paul says about Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What he's saying is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yeah, he has bodily form, he is a man, but all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in him. He is fully God and fully man. Titus 2.13, this is where our hope is, by the way. Your hope is not that you might land a good job ten years from now. Your hope is not that uh, uh, you might be able to pay your mortgage payment this week. If you're a Christian, if you truly trust in Jesus Christ, your blessed hope is the, the fact that our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return to this planet someday, and He's going to set things straight and make things right. Looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope in your time of despair. Look at this verse. Cling to this verse. You know, 
Anybody tells you, anybody's unsaved and he tells you that he has hope, he's either very ignorant or he's lying through his teeth. Because I'll tell you, if you want hope, you go to a manger 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. If you want hope, you've got to go to an empty tomb. If you want hope, you've got to go to a wooden cross. If you want hope, you've got to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because outside of Him, there is no hope. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so Paul was not ashamed to call his Savior God. In fact, Paul was very happy to call his Savior God because one thing Paul found out, if he was going to be saved, it was going to have to be God who was doing the saving. Anybody else who puts their trust in man to save them is going to come short. Our Savior is God, and that is the only reason why He is able to save. Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, I believe Paul is speaking here. And he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Let me tell you something. He says the church of God. God there can't refer to God the Father. You know why? Because he never bled. God the Father don't have veins. It can't be God the Holy Spirit. Because God the Holy Spirit never bled. And so when Paul says the church of God, which he, meaning God, purchased with his own blood, he's referring to Jesus Christ as God, because only God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man and died on the cross for our sins. Doubting Thomas, we all remember Doubting Thomas. Let me tell you something. You know, we always slam, turn to John 20, we always slam Thomas for, for doubting. If there's anybody in this room who follows, who, is there anybody in this room who would have followed the teachings of a man and then the man dies a brutal death and you know the guy who's dead and then three days later people are telling you that he's alive, what would you do? You would doubt too. So don't, don't slam Thomas. By the way, Thomas was the kind of guy, he was earlier on, he was willing to die for Jesus. All the apostles said, let's not go to Judea, we're going to get killed. Thomas says, hey, if Jesus is going to Judea, let's go and die with him. But Thomas was the kind of guy, he put all his eggs in one basket. Down in Thomas was the kind of guy, say, he told the other apostles, telling, he said, look, I trusted in Jesus, I thought he was the Jewish Messiah, I thought he was going to redeem Israel, and set us free from the Romans, and establish us as the greatest nation on earth. I put all my eggs in one basket, I had everything, all my faith, all my hope, all my love, I poured out to this guy, and now he's dead. My hope died on that cross, is what Thomas is saying. I don't have hope anymore. And now you guys come up and you tell me he's alive? I'm not like you guys. When I love, I love with everything I have. When I give, I give everything. 
I can't accept what you're saying. You can't tell me, you know, you just can't be dead and then all of a sudden, boom, he's alive, he's back in the picture. But if I touch his hands, and I feel the holes in his hands, and the holes in his feet, then I'll hope again. And then I'll believe. Man, this guy, Thomas, don't slam Thomas for being doubting. And Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. Because he had eyewitness testimony. He knew Peter. He knew John. He knew James. These guys weren't liars. They were honest, God-fearing Jews. They didn't lie. He had solid eyewitness testimony. But Thomas said, I need more than that. Even the Apostle Paul needed more than that. So Jesus came off the throne room, knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. Take a look at John 20. In fact, take it from verse 26 to 29. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Literally in the Greek, that's hakoriasmu kaihathiasmu. It's the model for the Institute of Biblical Defense. The Lord of me and the God of me. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He didn't call Jesus a God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. He called him the God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses like to say, well, he was just saying, Oh my Lord, oh my God, he's alive. That's not what occurred there. You do that to a serious God-fearing Jew, Jewish rabbi like Jesus, and he will slam you for taking God's name in vain. You don't just throw around the name of God. Oh, my Lord, oh, my God. Verse 29, Jesus said, Okay, you said, My Lord, oh, my God, because you've seen me risen, now you believe who I really am. Now you figure out that I'm not only your Messiah, but I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Become a man to redeem the nation of Israel and all mankind who would trust in me for salvation. It took seeing the risen Savior to drop Thomas to his knees and to cause him to realize that Jesus Christ was his Lord and his God. And then look at the Apostle Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Matthew records this. But when he had considered this, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, now he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Real clear. I was reading the work of an atheist philosopher the other day, and he's trying to say that it was predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and his name would be Emmanuel. But when Jesus came, his name wasn't Emmanuel, it was Jesus, therefore it's a contradiction. The Jews used names as titles. All he's saying is Emmanuel is not going to be his literal name, but Emmanuel is a title that he rates. And believe me, there is no other man that would rate the name Emmanuel, God with us, other than God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the second person of the Trinity, who became a man. So the apostles called, the apostles called Jesus God. John, Peter, Paul, Thomas, and Matthew. What about the Old Testament prophets? Now they lived before Jesus became a man, However, they predicted that, that he would come someday. Someday the Jewish Messiah would come. Now, Isaiah 7:14, we don't need to look at that because Matthew just quoted it. But take a look at Isaiah 9:6. Isaiah 9:6. He's talking about the Messiah. We know that because he says the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And the Jews knew that God predicted that when the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one of God, prophesied in the Old Testament, who would, when he would come, he would eventually redeem the nation of Israel. And the government would rest on his shoulders. He would rule the world and establish Israel as the greatest nation on earth. Look at what he says, though. And in verse 7 makes that even clearer about... There's uh, no end to the increase of his government, and on the throne of, of David he, he, and over his kingdom he will rule. But in verse 6 it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now it's talking about Jesus. Now I want to say something about Eternal Father. There's two Hebrew words for father. One is father in a real literal sense, and the other is father as far as the founder of something. Like philosophers talk about Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, as being the founder of the father of modern, modern existentialism, because he founded that type of philosophy. Uh, John Dewey, a socialist who tried to get America to move more and more towards communism, He's called the father of modern education. Now you know why our modern public school education is in so much trouble today. It's because of John Dewey, who lived earlier in this century, at least survived earlier in this century. Um, that's the way this word is being used. This is the, the lesser of the two words for father. So what it basically means, the eternal uncaused cause or the eternal origin of all that exists. That's all it means by eternal father. It's not saying that Jesus the Son is the same person as the Father. 
However, where it says mighty God, it is very clear that when this little child is born, when the Jewish Messiah comes to earth, that we need to recognize, yes, he's the Prince of Peace. Yes, the government will rest upon his shoulders, but you need to recognize he is also the eternal creator, the origin of all that exists, and he is none other than the mighty God. The same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. The same God who parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry land. The same God who created the heavens and the earth is a little child in a manger in Bethlehem. Look at Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 5. Verse 2. He predicts the birth of Christ. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. What he's basically saying is, yes, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's written hundreds of years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. But not only is he going to be born in Bethlehem, but he just decided to throw in there, oh, by the way, he's existed throughout all eternity. Hey, there's only one being who existed throughout all eternity, and that is God. It just so happens there's one being in a way that we don't understand is three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, take a look at Zechariah 14. I almost forgot this passage. Zechariah 14 and verse 5. Zechariah is talking about the end times. And a lot of end time fanatics and stuff, and I, to a certain degree, I'm one of them. I love the end time studies. It's through the end time studies and reading Hal Lindsey books, I eventually became a Christian. I found Jesus when I realized the Bible really was relevant even in the 20th century. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5. He's talking about the end times, but sometimes we end time fanatics aren't looking for clues into the true personhood. The, the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ when we're reading about the end times. We just want to know some little detail that we're looking for. And it says there, it says, talking about the end times and the second coming of Christ, that His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, verse 4. And then in verse 5, And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Now think for a minute. What's he talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Christ. When Jesus returns with all his angels and power and glory. Now if he's talking about the second coming of Christ, why in the world would he say, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus is the Lord my God. 
Zechariah is just saying, hey, oh, when the Messiah comes in power, which is we know now is the second coming of Christ, he just refers to him as the Lord my God, because the Messiah is the Lord my God. It's Zechariah, by the way. If I, said, I might have said Micah there. But the Old Testament prophets, just like the New Testament apostles, they called Jesus God. Look at Hebrews 1.8. We've been hearing the witness of man. Now we need to see what God Himself, God the Father, says about uh, the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 1.8. It's talking about the fact that In fact, look at verse 6. It says, And when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says... So God the Father says this, when he brings his God the Son into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, throughout the Scriptures, especially in Exodus chapter 20, but throughout the Scriptures, God says, Hey, I'm a jealous God. I don't share my glory or my worship with anybody. You, you worship me alone or you're an idolater. Yet, God the Father says, let all the angels of God worship my Son. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says... See, the author's arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says... So of the Son, God the Father says this, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. So God the Father refers to God the Son as God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses try to twist this and try to make it say, uh, God is thy throne forever and ever. Now, let me say this to the Jehovah's Witnesses. God ain't nobody's throne. You sit on a throne. A throne is not as great as the one who sits on... Uh, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. The only way this passage makes sense if it's translated just the way it is here in the New American Standard, uh, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father is calling God the Son God. So God the Father called Jesus God. What about Jesus Himself? Did He refer to Himself as God? Let's take a look at a few passages, mainly in the Gospel of John. I don't think we're going to get entirely through this passage this week, so we're going to pick up uh, next week. But let's get started on the fact that Jesus called himself God. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. But he answered them. Jesus is speaking. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And then John puts in this comment. And John, being Jewish, you know, he, he knew more about the, the uh, terminology, the theology, the language of the Jews. They were probably speaking Aramaic, even though he recorded this in Greek, so that the rest of the world could read about it. But in verse 18, John says this, For this cause, therefore, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders... We're seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, 
making himself equal with God. Now, this might be hard to understand in modern American English, okay? Because nowadays, everybody calls themselves the Son of God and that type of thing. And, and uh, many people in the world's religion say, I believe Jesus is a Son of God and that type of thing. We believers, we are sons of God through adoption. We don't deserve it, but God adopted us into His family because of what Jesus did, okay? Jesus wasn't claiming to be a son of God by adoption. He was claiming to be the son of, the son of God by nature. When he said, my father, to the other Jews, he said it in a way where he was basically making it clear, my father, oh, by the way, he is my father in a unique way that he is not your father. I have a, I'm part of a father-son relationship with the father that nobody else ever had. I am uniquely the son of God by nature. That's what Christ claimed, and it was very clear to Jewish ears when he said that, probably using Aramaic words, it was very clear that he was claiming to be none other than God in the flesh. See, the word, the son of God... I believe properly understood the Son of God, to claim to be the Son of God is a claim to be God become a man. You see, I do not believe, some theologians, lots of theologians disagree with me, but I do not believe that Jesus was God's Son as God. In other words, you have the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's no Father-Son relationship there. But at a point in time, when God the, God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, now He takes on the name, the Son of God. God become a man because He is the offspring of God as a man. So I see Jesus as God the Father's Son through his human nature. At the same time, he always existed as a separate person than the Father in his divine nature, but it was as God, the second person of the Trinity. John refers to him as the Word. Okay? So to call yourself the Son of God, in a unique sense, the unique Son of God, to the Jewish years, what that meant was you were claiming to be God in the flesh. By the way, the only other man who, who the Jews would call the Son of God was in their genealogies. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so who was the son of Adam who was the son of God. So the first man they would call the Son of God because he came directly from God. Angels could be called sons of God because God created each one of them directly. They didn't bear, they didn't get, two angels didn't get together and have a baby angel. God created them all directly. So you could be called the Son of God in that sense, that you came directly from God. But if a man born of a woman comes on the scene thousands and thousands of years after Adam and refers to himself as the Son of God, he's claiming to have come directly from God. He's claiming to be equal with God, even though he is fully man as well. Uh, now, 
you would think that if Jesus in that passage, if these guys are drawing a conclusion that he never intended, you would think, well, then Jesus is going to clear it up and say, hey, wait, guys, don't kill me. You misunderstood me. You misinterpreted me. I never claimed to be God. But look what he says in verse 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, John 5, 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you can't... Some people say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. Well, Jesus says right there, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father who sent him. Okay? So that refutes all the world's religions except for Christianity. But earlier he says the way that we should honor the Son is even as we honor the Father. How do you honor the Father? You give Him the ultimate in honor. You worship Him. How does Jesus say we are to honor Him? He says, you give me the same honor that you give my Father. You worship me. So Jesus didn't correct them and say, you misunderstood me. He just reinforces their interpretation of what He said and says, yeah, I am claiming to be God. Now, that's all we have time for today. We'll pick it up with other claims that Jesus made where Jesus called Himself God in different ways and at different times. He called Himself God, and then we'll see that Jesus also acted as God. He accepted worship, forgave sins, was arrested for blasphemy. He created the universe. He is called the Lord of all. And the Bible teaches that in the last days, every knee will bow to Jesus when Isaiah 45 clearly says that every knee will bow to God and to God alone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, that though we made such a tremendous mess out of our lives, though we're all sinners and we rebelled against you and we deserve the flames of hell, that you recognized that there was only one way that we could be saved. There had to be a substitute sacrifice. You're a holy and a just God. You must judge and punish all sin if it's to be forgiven. But you chose to punish the sins of man without punishing the sinful man by punishing your Son on the cross. And so we thank you that your ultimately worthy Son became a man, took our punishment for us, and died on the cross for our sins. Lord, I pray right now that if there's anyone in this room that has never ever asked Jesus to be their Savior, that they would recognize that that little baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago was none other than our Creator, was none other than our God, and that there is absolutely no hope for mankind collectively and no hope for mankind individually. There's no hope for any of us except through the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who took our punishment for us and died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead on the third day and conquered death for us. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here in this room that has never asked your son Jesus to be his or her personal Savior, 
that they would say these words after me and accept Jesus as their Savior. And I pray that the rest of us, Lord, will repeat these words just to recommit our lives to your Son, Jesus. Lord, I know that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself. But I trust in your Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins. I ask Him to save me and to forgive me and to guide me throughout my life. Amen. Well, it looks like Eric had to split, so we're going to change our last song <laughs> from what we had normally had planned. And Dwayne's going to play the guitar. <laughs> 